You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I'm going to talk to you today about management of eyelid malignancies and primarily focusing on reconstruction of uh, the, uh, the eyelids after uh, resection. Let's see. And I have no uh, financial uh, disclosures. So in general, when we talk about eyelid and orbital uh, malignancies, and I think this is pretty much true for, for all malignancies everywhere, early diagnosis is critical. And we talk about, you know, it takes a village, but it really is a team effort uh, to, to try to get these uh, lesions, especially on the eyelid, diagnosed early. Uh, there's a limited amount of eyelid tissue, so the smaller your resection, the better the aesthetic outcome, the better the functional outcome, and of course it improves uh, survival. And this is a multidisciplinary approach. It's a team effort uh, from everybody involved in the patient's uh, medical care. Um, so I just wanted to kind of go through what the top 10 eyelid malignancies are. So pretty much uh, I would guess, uh, as is true for elsewhere in the body, number one is going to be basal cell, right? And actually, number two is basal cell. And if you go through and you look at the top nine, it's going to be basal cell. Basal cell carcinoma represents 95% of eyelid malignancies. So if you were a guess, if you were a betting man and you just saw a lesion on a patient and you said, well, that's a basal cell, you'd probably be uh, right. And then for the last uh, 5%, in order of frequency, we have squamous cell, We've got sebaceous cell uh, carcinoma, malignant melanoma, and Merkel cell uh, carcinoma. Now, this is true for North America. It's actually very different in other parts of the world. So, for example, in Asia, they have a much lower incidence of basal cell carcinoma and a much higher incidence of sebaceous cell carcinoma. So there is some uh, regional predilection uh, that you need to be aware of uh, depending on where your patient, uh, the, uh, the demographic of your patient population. So when I look at an eyelid and I look at a lesion uh, that, that a patient is concerned about or a referring physician is uh, concerned about, there are things that we kind of uh, ask for or look for that raise, our, uh, raise some red flags. So growth, obviously. Ulceration or lid notching. I'm not sure if you can see it very clearly in this patient, in this photo here, but, um, you know, the eyelid margin should be a smooth, continuous uh, contour. And so if there's a notch in the eyelid, like that, the first thing I ask the patient is, have they ever had any trauma to the eyelids or any prior surgery to the eyelids? Because absent of any trauma or prior surgery to the eyelid where they may not have reapproximated the lid margin contour appropriately, that's a skin cancer until proven otherwise. There's no other um, lesion or uh, condition that's going to cause lid notching uh, other than iatrogenic uh, or trauma uh, or a sclerosing type of uh, malignancy. Telangiectasis, or uh, vessels growing into the base of the lesion, especially on the eyelid. The eyelid is a very vascular structure, and when these malignancies are present on the eyelid, you'll, you'll oftentimes see large, bore, large caliber vessels growing into the base of the lesion to provide that nutritional supply that the uh, cancer needs. Matarosis. Matarosis means loss of eyelashes. And in fact, if I, if I had to categorize this list of suspicious characteristics, I would probably put matarosis up at the top. I should have put it up at the top because when you have a, a skin cancer, the first thing that goes is the lash follicle architecture. And so if you have a gap in the lashes, and maybe not so much for men, but women will oftentimes come in and say, there's a gap in my lashes because they notice that. Um, that that's a suspicious feature that raises our uh, raises our um, concern. 
Uh, deepening pigmentation, mainly uh, if we're concerned about melanoma, a lesion or a freckle that's been on the eyelid for years and years and all of a sudden starts getting dark, uh, darker, deep black or dark brown, uh, that's also a concern. And when I look at eyelid lesions, I can kind of, t I tell patients, you know, I think this is benign or I'm a little bit suspicious on this uh, lesion. But in all patients, I tell them if they want 100% assurance as to whether something is benign or malignant, it requires a biopsy. And, and this is no different than anywhere else on the, biopsy, uh, on the body. And studies have shown that even when you have experienced clinicians, experienced surgeons, that the misdiagnosis rate for malignancies on eyelid lesions is about 5%. So I'm not sure I'm willing to um, accept the 5% misdiagnosis rate when it can, we can so easily obtain a biopsy and get a definitive diagnosis from the pathologist. Um, so just a, a quick review of these uh, malignancies. So basal cell carcinoma is the most common eyelid malignancy. 95% of all eyelid mal malignancies, most commonly on the lower eyelid, but certainly uh, can see it on the upper eyelid as well. And as with all basal cells related to sun exposure, rarely metastasizes, very slow growing. However, they still need to be removed from the eyelid because they can grow locally. They can uh, invade the orbit. And once they get into the orbit, they can affect the vision. They can spread into the sinuses. Um, but because they're so slow growing, you know, early diagnosis uh, leads to an excellent prognosis, both aesthetic and uh, functional. Oftentimes, uh, the classical basal cell is a nodular lesion on the eyelid with central ulceration. So you can see right there, nice little raised nodule, uh, loss of eyelashes. You can see the gap in the eyelashes uh, overlying that lesion, and then that central ulceration. And then, of course, this is that patient that I showed you earlier with a notch in the eyelid, a thinning of the lashes there, um, and that ended up being a sclerosing basal cell uh, carcinoma. Common locations on the face, uh, the number one location, obviously, is the tip of the nose. Uh, the second uh, and third most common locations, uh, depending on which study, sometimes uh, they flip their uh, rank list, lower eyelid and upper lip. And microscopic extension can actually result in a very large area of involvement. So this is a patient here uh, who has uh, a you know, ulcerating lesion in the medial canthus along the side of the nose there. And you think, well, you know, maybe it's about a centimeter in size, maybe a little bit larger than that. And actually, when you do uh, frozen section monitoring or a Mohs excision, the actual true extension uh, is uh, quite large and involves upper lower eyelids, medial canthal region, lacrimal drainage system. Uh, which becomes a very challenging uh, reconstruction. So here, this is, I think, is a perfect example of how early diagnosis uh, can really yield a much, much better uh, aesthetic and functional prognosis. Um, squamous cell carcinoma, even though it doesn't represent a large uh, number of eyelid malignancies, we oftentimes get concerned about squamous cell because of the uh, higher likelihood, higher propensity for um, distant metastases, as well as uh, in perineural invasion and extension into their intracranial space. So usually they're slow growing, but they can grow rapidly later uh, in, their, in their course. They can invade the peripheral nerves. And what's most concerning is when we see a lesion that is overlying a large caliber nerve. So here, this one's overlying the infraorbital nerve. If we see it on the forehead 
overlying the medial forehead and eyebrow area that's overlying the supraorbital nerve where you have the zygomatical frontal nerve or the zygomatical facial nerve out laterally, that's oftentimes much more concerning to us because if they do have perineal invasion, oftentimes that invasion has extended deep into the orbit and through the inferior orbital fissure and possibly uh, into the intracranial space uh, already even before they become large ulcerating uh, skin lesions uh, that you see here. Um, they can metastasize to the lymph nodes and have distant metastases as well. And so your workup for a squamous cell, my workup for a squamous cell uh, carcinoma is very, very different than a patient who comes back with a biopsy of a basal cell carcinoma. Here, if they come in with a, or if the biopsy report says it's a squamous cell carcinoma, we're looking at the neck to see if there, uh, there's any lymph node enlargement. We're getting scans uh, to see if there's any lymphadenopathy, any other sites of uh, distant metastases. Whereas with a basal cell, there's just no need to, uh, really, the, the likelihood of uh, distant metastases or regional metastases is so low that uh, we, don't, uh, we don't bother doing that type of a uh, workup. And then patients with squamous cells, especially these large advanced squamous cells on the face, head, neck area, we oftentimes get concerned about whether they're immunocompromised as well. Uh, so from, in my practice, it's more of just more of a probing history. Um, usually uh, they already come in with uh, a known diagnosis of being in an immunocompromised uh, sta state. But it might be uh, worthwhile if you're seeing them primarily uh, to consider HIV testing or uh, have them seen by their internists for an additional, uh, additional workup. So sebaceous cell carcinoma is fairly unique to the, uh, to the eyelid. It's the second most deadliest eyelid malignancy, second to, um, uh, to uh, melanoma, probably represents about 1% of eyelid malignancies. And we call it the great masquerader because it originates from the oil glands in the eyelid. And the oil glands in the eyelid reside in the tarsus. So that's in the posterior surface of the eyelid. So oftentimes, by the time you see a skin manifestation or skin lesion, it's already fairly extensive uh, within, the, uh, within the tarsus. Um, oftentimes, they may uh, look very similar to a sty or a chalazion, which is uh, a blocked oil gland in the eyelid. Um, if you evert the eyelid and look at the underside of the eyelid, you'll oftentimes see yellowish depositions throughout the tarsus, uh, and that kind of gives you an, a clue as to how extensive uh, the, um, the, the lesion is in the eyelid. Oftentimes, uh, again, as with any malignancy associated with matarosis. And these lesions also can have distant or uh, regional uh, metastases. So, again, uh, doing a lymph node evaluation, head neck evaluation, uh, scans, uh, uh, sometimes lymph node biopsy is uh, what we're uh, performing uh, on these patients. You can see this patient here uh, just kind of has some crusting on the, uh, on the eyelid margin, a little bit of elevation there. Uh, I didn't show the pic I don't have a picture of her everted, but when you evert the eyelid, you'll see all these yellowish depositions, and that's the, the oil glands that are uh, involved uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the malignancy. And then, of course, melanoma. Melanoma actually represents uh, a very, very, uh, again, a, a small percentage of our um, uh, eyelid malignancies, probably less than 1% or around 1%, but it has the highest mortality of all eyelid malignancies. And in my practice, I see primary eyelid malignancies, uh, melanomas as uh, more frequently than um, uh, regional or uh, uh, spread of melanoma from, for example, the conjunctiva or from uh, somewhere else uh, on, the, on the body. Um, 
it can have variable pigmentation. So it's not your typical, it's a very discrete lesion that's elevated, that's dark black. Most eyelid malignants, uh, eyelid melanomas kind of look like this. They're, they're usually somewhat flat. Um, the pigmentation is dispersed over a uh, you know, somewhat large area of the eyelid. This is going all the way up into the eyebrow, coming all the way down to the eyelid margin. But then there are areas that just look very dark, uh, and, and uh, this uh, would prompt us to, uh, to biopsy uh, this area. Or if that area of light brown pigmentation is spreading, uh, that's also an indication or, or a, um, a suspicious feature that would lead me to uh, biopsy uh, that area. Sometimes they can break down, the skin can break down over these lesions, and you can get some ulceration or bleeding. Um, when we look at these eyelid melanomas, what really uh, concerns us is when we, see the, um, when we see the pigmentation extending to the or around the eyelid margin. And it's not really certain as to why, uh, but when we look at these patients that have pigmentation, melanoma involving the eyelid margin, they oftentimes end up with a much, or they have a much worse uh, prognosis in terms of survival. Uh, perhaps it's due to uh, the, the lymphatic drainage uh, of the eyelid. Um, uh, they um, don't have as high of a survival rate, overall survival rate, uh, as uh, patients who have melanoma on the eyelid that doesn't involve the eyelid margin. This is no different um, when patients come in and they say, well, you know, I've had my basal cell now on my eyelid. What can I do or what should I do? And uh, we oftentimes will talk about sun protection. And this came up just a few months ago. A patient says, well, I'm already 60 years old. I've never used sunscreen in my life. Uh, do I really need to use it? And I tell them, you know, I see a lot of patients now that are in their hundreds or in their 90s. That's a lot of years left ahead of you. And I don't think it's ever too late to start. So sun protection. Uh, for the eyelids, I emphasize physical ba uh, barrier protection. So that's a hat with a brim. Um, and, and I'm from Houston, Texas. The sun is intense, even in the wintertime. Uh, you're walking out in the parking lot. It's reflecting off the concrete in the uh, parking lot. Uh, so I tell them a hat with a brim is number one. Um, sunglasses, in general, are not very effective for sun protection for the, uh, for the eyelids. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing, uh, but, um, but it's not going to be as effective as a hat with a brim. I always emphasize uh, sunblock. Physical sunblock uh, is preferred. Chemical sunblock uh, is, again, better than nothing uh, as well. Before I start talking about eyelid reconstruction, I wanted to just kind of review a, a little, do a quick review of eyelid anatomy. So I like to think of the eyelid as a sandwich, and there are multiple layers in the eyelid. And we have an anterior layer, which is the skin and the muscle. We have a posterior layer, which is the conjunctiva, that's the lining that lines the eye, as well as the tarsus, which is the actual substrate, that's the structural support of the uh, eyelid. And then we have this middle lamella, which is the septum, uh, that kind of splits the, uh, the layers. And the reason why it's important to, to recognize that, that the, the multiple layers of the eyelid is, if you have a skin cancer that you're removing and you're leaving a defect that only involves one layer, then the options for reconstruction are greatly enhanced. Each layer, the anterior layer and the posterior layer, has its own unique blood supply. And so as long as we can maintain 
one layer's blood supply, we can actually put a skin graft on. We, can, we have more options for reconstruction. If, however, the excision of the skin cancer results in a full defect, a full thickness defect, where we don't have that anterior and posterior layer remaining, then our options are limited because now we have to bring in a blood supply. Otherwise, if, we, if you try to stick in a composite, if you just took a chunk of an eyelid and plugged it into the hole, it wouldn't survive. It wouldn't have an adequate blood supply. So here's just a kind of a diagram uh, demonstrating this is the septum uh, separating the posterior lamella, which is the tarsus here, the, the actual physical substrate that gives the eyelid structure and the conjunctival lining. And then the skin and muscle is cut away here, but the skin and muscle would lie on top of the septum. That represents the uh, anterior lamella. This is the upper eyelid here, and it's the same on the lower eyelid here. The septum comes down here. It separates the anterior lamella, which is the skin and muscle, from the tarsus and the, uh, and, and the conjunctiva and the orbital structures. And then we also have the lacrimal drainage system. So I, uh, the, the lacrimal drainage system, it's, the eye is just like a sink. You've got, um, you've got a drain that's going to take away the tears from your eye, and it dumps it out into the nose. So that's why a lot of, patient, or a lot of people, when they cry, they end up with a runny nose. And the openings to the tear drainage system is in the medial portions uh, of the uh, eyelid here, on both the upper lid and the lower eyelid. So when we're taking out skin cancers, if the, uh, I tell patients that your number one priority is you've got to get the cancer out. So if it means that the lacrimal drainage system is sacrificed, then, then so be it. It has to be sacrificed. Um, we can reconstruct the lacrimal drainage system. We just need to know uh, that, that it's been uh, involved. Um, when I work with, my, with our Mohs surgeon, the Mohs surgeons oftentimes will say, well, you know, it's getting close to the tear drainage system. Um, I'm a little bit worried about that, that I might have to take it. And I said, just go ahead and take it because uh, I, I don't want to have a patient coming back a year later or two years later dealing with a recurrence uh, just to save the lacrimal drainage system when we have great options for reconstructing the lacrimal drainage system. So um, we've got the, uh, the puncta, which is the opening to the tear drains. Those are located in the medial eyelids. And then you've got the canaliculus, which is the portion that uh, takes the uh, tears from the eyelid margin into the tear sac. Now, this tear sac lies within the bony fossa, so oftentimes skin cancer resections won't involve the uh, tear sac unless it's invading the, uh, the orbit. Um, but oftentimes the canaliculus may be uh, sacrificed. The puncta definitely could be uh, sacrificed uh, as well. I rarely will do a primary reconstruction of the tear drainage system. Even if it's sacrificed, I'll tell the patient, we're going to reconstruct your eyelid, but we're not going to do the uh, lacrimal drainage system reconstruction until uh, a later point in time. And the reason for that is that we don't have a good way of monitoring the, uh, the tear drainage system or uh, inside the tear drainage system. So I like to make them wait so that we are certain that we don't have any recurrence uh, there's no evidence of a recurrence or residual um, tumor uh, because if we reconstruct the tear drainage system and there's a recurrence, we may not be able to monitor that tear drainage system uh, and we may not know that there's a recurrence if the tumor is spreading within that tear drainage system until the tumor becomes uh, fairly large. So usually my typical waiting period might be six months, might be 12 months, depending on the kind of uh, uh, malignancy uh, that we're dealing with. 
So surgical excision for most eyelid malignancies is, is preferred, and I, I always use a Mohs surgeon. Uh, we do these cases. Uh, we coordinate our procedure so the, the Mohs surgeon is doing the excision uh, either in the morning uh, and then I'm reconstructing in the afternoon uh, or right after they uh, finish with the uh, excision, or if they're doing it in the afternoon, we'll just bring them in the next day in the morning to do the uh, reconstruction. Um, I think what's really changed in the last three to five years have been the biologics. The biologics for basal cell carcinoma and now uh, recently uh, approved for, for squamous cell carcinoma has really changed our approach to advanced disease, metastatic disease, or patients that just aren't good surgical candidates. But I still tell everybody, all the patients, all my referring docs, surgical excision is still the, uh, the primary uh, preferred treatment modality for eyelid malignancies. So. The lesion's been excised. Number one priority is getting all of the cancer out. So whatever it takes, uh, however much tissue, however much eyelid uh, needs to be resected, um, that's uh, I, I'm okay with that. And uh, you know, even if it's a hundred percent eyelid recon uh, resection, we can reconstruct that. So we always like to assess the uh, defect, and, and you never really know what the defect size is going to be until the patient shows up after their excision from the Mohs surgeon. So the things that I'm looking for, is it full thickness or is it just a partial thickness? Is the, has it only been one uh, lamella, the anterior lamella, or is it involving both the anterior and the posterior lamella? Is the lid margin being uh, affected? Uh, have the lashes uh, been uh, removed? Um, because there are two things that are uh, critical to getting a, a good aesthetic outcome of an eyelid. The first thing is you need to have a smooth eyelid margin. If you end up with a notched eyelid uh, or an irregular eyelid margin, patients hate that. Um, and then the second thing is you need to have a continuous row of eyelashes, especially for the, for the female patients. If you don't have a continuous row of eyelashes, it stands out when they put their mascara on, and they'll hate you for that. So, um, uh, so, so if it's involving the lid margin, those are the, the key factors that we need to uh, be aware of when we're reconstructing the eyelid. Obviously, the size of the defect is um, concerning, and, and sort of the, the size of the margin defect, how much of the eyelid margin is being involved. Um, and so you can see here in these two photos here, this is a, uh, both are involving the eyelid margin, but this is barely involving the eyelid margin, a small, shallow, primarily an a anterior lamellar defect, probably about 25% of the eyelid. Here, a much larger defect, probably about 80%, 90% of the uh, eyelid margin there involving the full thickness uh, eyelid margin defect. And I'll talk a little bit about how we reconstruct uh, these uh, eyelid defects. So if it's a small partial thickness defect, uh, which is great because it's not going uh, deep and involving the full thickness, it's not involving the eyelid margin, I think these are pretty easy to, uh, to, to reconstruct, um, especially in older patients, which is our typical population for skin cancers of the eyelid. Um, the tissue is lax. There's usually enough tissue laxity that you can pull the margins together uh, and do a primary closure. When you're doing a primary closure of the eyelid, though, always just do a superficial skin closure. Again, the eyelid is multi-laminated. It's got multiple layers. And if you're putting in deep sutures and you're sewing the layers together, it's going to affect the movement of the eyelid. It's going to affect how, the eye, how far the eyelid can come down and uh, elevate. So the safest thing to do is just to do a skin closure and allow the layers to heal up uh, on their own. That's the number one mistake I see for... Um, 
patients who, for example, will go to an emergency room, they have an eyelid laceration, and the ER doc likes to put in deep sutures because it looks like it's a deep, um, uh, a deep laceration, and we end up with uh, problems, uh, which sometimes can be challenging to, uh, to uh, correct um, when, the, the when the layers of the eyelid are uh, um, sutured together. So same thing when you're closing up your, uh, your excision defects as well. And then you always want to, on the eyelid, if it's near the eyelid margin, you want to make sure that the orientation of your closure is vertical. We always like vertical closures because you're less likely to end up with distortion of the eyelid margin contour. If you do a horizontal closure, when that uh, contracts, you can get puckering uh, of the eyelid margin of the lash line. And again, that's uh, oftentimes difficult to correct. We'd have to release that cicatrice, open that area back up, and oftentimes by then we're, we're talking about putting in a skin graft down to, uh, to release that and prevent it from um, puckering again. So try to maintain a vertical orientation to your closure. Um, primary closure, if, it's, if it is involving the eyelid margin, uh, off, many times, especially in older patients, if they have enough laxity, we can just do a primary closure, just pull the eyelid margin together. Um, often, many times, I'll do a, a little bit of an additional excision just so that I'll have right angles and sharp sharp edges so that everything will come together very nicely. Uh, and then the, the key features, again, aligning the lash line and making sure we have good alignment of the lid margin so we have, end up with a nice, smooth uh, contour to the uh, eyelid. So we're using usually 6 or 7 silk to uh, close the uh, lid margin and to align the lash line. And then it's a multi-layered closure here uh, in the tarsus and in the uh, skin and muscle to close the posterior lamella and the anterior lamella of the, uh, of the eyelid. If, for example, we're dealing with a younger patient um, where they don't have a lot of tissue laxity, uh, I might need to release the eyelid at the lateral canthus, the lateral canthal tendon, just to uh, get a little bit more pull uh, so that we can close that um, defect primarily. This would work well, I, I would say, for primary closure usually works well for like your 10 to 15 max 20% eyelid margin defects. Uh, for larger defects, anywhere for, uh, up to, say, 60 or 70% of the eyelid, as long as there's a little stump of the eyelid that remains out laterally, we can oftentimes go lateral to the eyelid, release the lateral canthal tendon, undermine the, the tissues along the temple uh, over the temporalis fascia, and do a rotational flap where we can pull that tissue from the temple onto the eyelid and use that to reconstruct the eyelid. Now, obviously, there's no eyelashes out in this reconstructed area that we're pulling from the temple, but most of the lashes that we have actually are concentrated centrally uh, and medially. You, we actually have thinning of our eyelashes as we go out towards the lateral portions of the eyelid, so many times this is not quite, uh, it's not too noticeable that they don't have as many lashes uh, out laterally after we do this type of a reconstruction. So in this diagram, we're just showing that you've got this margin defect that's probably, you know, I would say anywhere 50 to 60 percent is reasonable. As long as as you've got a little bit of a stump out lateral left, we come in, release the lateral canthal tendon, we're going to undermine a fairly large area uh, in a semicircular fashion, and then pull everything over. Uh, this is also called a tensile semicircular uh, rotational flap. Um, best if it's, uh, if you, again, if you have a, a lateral stump that remains. Um, and this is a younger patient that's being shown here. She's probably in her 50s. 
but the older the patient, the more laxity there is, the more likely you're going to be to be able to pull this uh, over. And so this is a patient where we did a uh, lateral canthotomy uh, and a small semicircular flap uh, to pull that over uh, and end up with a, um, a good eyelid margin uh, uh, contour. Uh, and at least she's got a continuous row of lashes, even though she's got uh, lack of lashes out in that lateral can eyelid region. So when you talk about defects that are larger than, say, 66 or 75% of the eyelid, that's where you really just don't have enough tissue to, to pull over to close, uh, even with uh, releasing the lateral canthus and, and using the temple tissues. And so now we're talking about doing larger um, eyelid sharing flaps. And the benefit of doing an eyelid sharing flap is we're bringing in a blood supply. So we're bringing in a blood supply from the other eyelid. So if it's a lower eyelid that we're reconstructing, we can pull a flap down from the upper eyelid, leave it pedicled so it maintains its blood supply, and that gives us a, uh, a better option for uh, a uh, reconstruction that's going to survive. So we can do this for the upper eyelid. We can do this for the lower eyelid. Um, because we're bringing in a blood supply, that allows us also to put free grafts, free skin grafts on top to reconstruct the skin, uh, whereas we wouldn't be able to do that if we were just doing a free uh, posterior lamellar graft. And this is because we're bringing in a pedicle, um, it's a, it's a two-stage procedure. We have to do the reconstruction, and then at a later date, usually somewhere around three to six weeks, um, after the uh, primary reconstruction, we go back in to release the pedicle so that the uh, eyelids are no longer uh, attached. So the downside of this, uh, these eyelid sharing flaps is because we're bringing it in from the other eyelid, uh, it blocks their vision. So it's not very practical if the patient is monocular. That's their better seeing eye. Um, they're not able to ambulate or get around. Then, then this really is not uh, a viable option for us. But if their other eye is, uh, can see well, uh, has good vision, um, most patients can, can get along just fine. They can drive. They can function normally with uh, the vision out of uh, one eye. It may take a little bit of an adjustment period if they're trying to pour their coffee uh, into a cup. But uh, from, from a getting around and functioning standpoint, they can function uh, with one eye for a short period of time. So here, this is a probably a 95% eyelid margin defect here, uh, and it goes all the way into the lateral canthus. So if you don't have that stump of the lateral uh, eyelid, then you really can't do a, a rotational flap. We need to pull in uh, tissue from the, from the other eyelid, from the, from the upper eyelid here. And this is just a diagram showing um, from this is a large defect. We can flip the eyelid around. Oops, excuse me. We, we can flip the eyelid around, take our tarsus and our conjunctiva from the upper eyelid, pull that down into the lower eyelid, secure that into position. That's bringing in a blood supply into this reconstructed area. And then we can either do a rotational flap from the lower eyelid and the cheek up into that uh, to uh, reconstruct the anterior lamella, or we can take a free skin graft and put it on top of our, um, our tarsal conjunctival flap there. And then at a later date, six weeks, Four weeks down the road, we'll come back and we'll release that pedicle and allow the eyelids to open up. Usually, I would say three weeks is adequate. Um, three or four weeks is probably adequate uh, before you can uh, open up the do the second stage and open up the eyelids, except for in smokers. In smokers, I've, I've taken down these flaps and I've just watched our reconstruction just kind of die away uh, after you uh, cut away the, uh, the pedicle uh, in smokers. So in smokers, uh, I would advise going longer before opening up the eyelids. 
And this is that same patient here uh, with that tarsal conjunctival flap reconstruction. And you can see we've got a nice smooth eyelid margin. Everything, uh, it hasn't contracted. It hasn't puckered from necrosis, uh, and she's got a, a good... She doesn't have eyelashes in that area, which she's not happy about, but at least she's got a functioning eyelid. She's got a, a decent-looking eyelid. Um, here's another um, tarsal conjunctival flap of the lateral right lower eyelid here, uh, and um, pulling in that uh, flap from the upper eyelid allows us to reconstruct that area because it goes all the way into the lateral canthus. We don't have that option of doing a, uh, a semicircular flap. Uh, allows us to get a good reconstructed uh, eyelid. You can also do this for the upper eyelid uh, as well. So this patient here has a large lesion on the right upper lid, and the resection uh, involves um, probably, I'd say, about 80% of the eyelid. For the lower eyelid, because we don't have the same height of tarsus, we oftentimes will do what's called a bridge flap. So we'll take the lower eyelid, uh, maintain a bridge of the lower eyelid uh, here, and pull this flap underneath this bridge this is the lower eyelid pulling it through the bridge and up into the upper eyelid. This way we can bring a blood supply into the upper eyelid while still maintaining a good contour uh, to the lower eyelid. And this is the bridge flap that's sewn into position. Um, and then when we release it, uh, again, good upper eyelid contour, good functioning upper eyelid that can blink, that can close all the way, and a, uh, uh, still maintaining a good lid margin to the lower eyelid as well. So some alternatives to eyelid-sharing flaps. So in those patients that are monocular that we can't or, or just don't want to occlude their vision, we can sometimes do what's called a sliding tarsal conjunctival flap, taking if there's enough tissue adjacent to the defect, we'll just do a partial height uh, excision and rotate that uh, conjunctiva and the tarsus over. Um, or you can do a free tarsal graft, but you can't do a free tarsal graft and then stick a free skin graft on top. You can't put a free graft on top of a free graft. So if you're going to do a free tarsal graft, then we have to do a, a muscle flap uh, reconstruction where we're pulling in a blood supply for, from the anterior lamella to allow that posterior tarsal graft to uh, survive. So what about defects that don't involve the eyelid margin that are fairly um, large? Uh, so this is oftentimes involving the medial canthal region. Um, and so here's where we can use rotational flaps or free grafts to uh, plug in the hole or fill in the defect. So this is a patient with a medial canthal defect on the lower eyelid here. And I basically, I just took a skin graft from the upper eyelid and filled that in, and it heals in uh, very nicely. This is another patient, large uh, medial basal cell that's uh, going up along the side of the nose uh, into the upper and the lower eyelids. And um, after the resection here, you can see this is the, the bridge of the nose here. So the defect comes all the way up to the bridge in the nose involving a good portion of the medial canthal region. And here we're going to use a, uh, a uh, glabellar flap, taking that tissue from between the eyebrows, rotating that tissue from between the eyebrows down uh, to uh, fill in that area, allowing that to um, heal. And this is still a little bit thick because the forehead and the brow tissues are thicker than the eyelid tissues. And so oftentimes we do need to come in uh, later, three months, six months down the road, to debulk that flap so that it flattens out and gives us a nice contour over the bridge of the nose. Um, large defects that aren't involving the eyelid margin here. Uh, you may be tempted uh, and, uh, to put a, a skin graft down, and um, a skin graft can actually look very good and blend in very nicely, but skin grafts are going to contract. 
and on the eyelid, even though the lid margin's not uh, involved, and this is where we're talking about trying to maintain that horizontal or uh, avoid that horizontal um, contraction, they can end up with a cicatricial electropion where the lid is pulled down and turned away from the, uh, from the globe. Here, probably what would have been better to do uh, to reconstruct this area is actually to do a, uh, an advancement flap, a mild cutaneous advancement flap, like a cheek lift or a mid-face lift, pulling up the mid-face uh, to narrow down the size of the skin graft that's uh, needed, and then maybe pulling in a small full, uh, free, uh, full thickness skin graft to uh, fill in the residual defect there. And then what I love about eyelid reconstruction is we have all these parameters, and I've just told you some parameters about, you know, two-thirds to 75% of the eyelid you do this, and 25% of the eyelid margin you do that. But in reality, most of the challenging cases, we just kind of have to use our creativity and kind of wing it. Uh, and uh, it's true. So, so here you have a patient where it's a huge defect involving the upper eyelid. It goes all the way to the nose. It's involving the uh, lower eyelid as well. And we just have to use a combination of techniques. Uh, those are the fundamental techniques that we have, and we just use a combination of various techniques to get the eyelid reconstructed. So this is um, immediately afterwards. We pulled, uh, did a medial canthopexy. We had to do a rotational flap um, to uh, reconstruct the medial canthal region, uh, pulling it down from the glabella, and also doing a, uh, a uh, uh, rotational flap from the um, uh, from the lateral canthal region, and then doing a free skin graft to fill in that small remaining uh, little bit of a hole. And actually, I saw this patient, this was about a year and a half ago, and I saw this patient back maybe about a month ago, and uh, doing really well. Uh, has a functioning eyelid, which is, uh, which is always important, able to close the eyelid, open the eyelid, and looks really, really good. So even large defects, we can do a pretty good job of reconstructing the uh, eyelid. So I want to finish up here. Um, talking about uh, the biologics, which I think have revolutionized our approach to advanced um, uh, skin cancers around the eyelid and the orbit. So when you have a big, large skin cancer around the eyelids and the orbit, or perhaps has invaded the orbit, oftentimes in the past, to obtain a surgical uh, cure, that involves cutting out everything there, doing a large resection of the skin on the face, as well as taking the eye. And that taking the eye part is what really um, uh, is disappointing for a lot of patients and for, for us as well, uh, because you, know, you only have two eyes, and you take away the vision from one eye, that's a, that's a, that's a, big, um, that's a big decision uh, to be made. But in this patient here, um, 10 years ago, there's no option there. The only option is to do a large resection. This is a basal cell, uh, and this is, uh, you know, extensive. It's already invaded the orbit, uh, the uh, down to the lateral uh, rim. Um, so not all patients are surgical candidates. Not all patients really want surgery uh, once they hear about what that surgery entails. And advanced disease can be uh, quite extensive. But now we've got great, uh, we've got a good option. So um, recurrent lesions can also be challenging. So this is a patient here who came to me um, and had been treated, basal cell carcinoma, had been treated with resection two or three times, came back each time. Then he was treated with uh, radiation to that area. So this whole area just looks sclerosed. Still came back, then treated again with resection. And now it's invading the orbit. It's still coming back. It's ulcerating uh, and extensive. Um, 
uh, and, and extending outwards, uh, so it's uh, the area of enlargement or involvement is getting larger and larger. So I think these new biologics uh, that target the molecular pathways that can control or, and prevent tumor growth have really changed the way that we approach uh, uh, these uh, skin cancer patients, especially for those that are around the, uh, the eyelids. And I'm sure you're familiar with all these. You know, uh, imiquimod is uh, FDA-approved for superficial basal cell carcinomas. Uh, we, uh, oftentimes, if you use it around the eyelids and it gets in the eye, patients will complain of a, you know, a fairly pronounced inflammatory reaction, but we have used it before around the eyelid, on the eyelid margin, uh, and, and it can be tolerated um, if you can just kind of hold their hand uh, through that initial uh, inflammatory reaction. The hedgehog uh, inhibitors, which is vismotigib and sanitigib um, for basal cell carcinoma, uh, really uh, been effective in controlling large extensive basal cell carcinomas and actually providing tumor reduction for large uh, areas to, to, to a more manageable size where we can then proceed with surgical excision. Uh, and then for squamous cell carcinoma, I believe it's been a year now, uh, but uh, cetuximab has been FDA-approved for the treatment of advanced uh, squamous cell carcinoma uh, as well. So imiquimod, um, it's been around for many, many years now, uh, activates toll-like receptor 7. Uh, the, the hedgehog pathway inhibitors, uh, which have now been out for, I believe, five or six years um, and, and uh, have really changed uh, at least the way I approach a lot of these um, large extensive basal cell carcinomas in the periorbital region. So this is a patient here, and it looks like the area of ulceration is actually fairly small, but if you could put your hands on this patient, the area of involvement is actually quite extensive along the lateral lower eyelid here and extending out. Uh, you can, if you look carefully, you can see the skin change here all the way out uh, into the temple. Uh, and this ulceration was actually all the way down to the bone. So in years past, if I was going to um, resect this, we would do a large resection, uh, potentially um, involving or getting to where his facial nerve uh, is and where the parotid gland uh, was, going all the way down to the bone and probably doing a little bit of resection of that maxilla as well. Uh, he didn't really want to opt for that, so uh, he chose to be treated with vismotigib. Uh, we were able to reduce that area of involvement to a much smaller size that was probably only about maybe about a centimeter or a centimeter and a half in diameter, which was uh, then uh, easily resected and reconstructed. So it's an oral, these are oral medications. Uh, they don't eliminate the tumor cells completely, so it's not a cure, but it can provide tumor, control of tumor growth and uh, significant reduction of tumor size as well. And these are just some diagrams uh, of how the hedgehog pathway inhibitors work. You know, the uh, vismotigib and sanitigib, they, um, they, block the, um, they block smoothened, which prevents the signaling pathway that uh, leads to uh, cell proliferation and tumor growth. Uh, so this is that patient that I showed you there. This is after a month on uh, vismotigib. You can see the area of involvement of ulceration has now uh, um, gotten much smaller. The area of involvement here, uh, we had multiple areas of uh, ulcerations uh, have uh, improved. And then this is, I believe, after about two and a half or three months of uh, vismotigib. Um, his eye has already been uh, lost due to the prior radiation, uh, but at least now we've got control of his, uh, of his tumor and um, really didn't have many good options except for more extensive surgery uh, in, in the past. 
Here's that other patient that I showed you here, and we were able to do a much uh, more reasonable excision uh, and a uh, rotational flap reconstruction of that, uh, of that area after reducing the tumor size. So cetuximab's uh, epithelial growth factor receptor um, uh, blocker, uh, it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to EGFR, uh, and it's FDA approved for the treatment of squamous cell uh, carcinoma, leads to down-regulation of EGFR uh, expression is what you would expect. And those are the biologics that are FDA-approved for the treatment of uh, skin malignancies. But I'm really excited because we've got biologics that are going to be coming down the path pipeline for melanoma, for sebaceous cell carcinoma. Uh, preliminary results have been very promising uh, that have been reported. So although they're not FDA-approved yet, uh, I think in the next two to three to five years, um, we're going to have more in our armamentarium to, uh, to use uh, for, these, uh, for these skin cancers, especially in the periorbital region. So just in summary, early detection, early detection, early detection. That, that's our goal. Um, basal cell carcinoma is the most common eyelid malignancy. If you see an eyelid uh, lesion, it's got loss of lashes, is ulcerated, Lid margin contour is irregular. If you just guessed basal cell, you'd probably be, uh, be right. Um, but uh, a biopsy is still indicated because a biopsy, getting a definitive diagnosis, really does dictate which path we take in terms of evaluating uh, the, the patient. Um, sunscreen is important to emphasize. Surgical treatment, even with all these new advances in these biologics, surgical treatment is still preferred uh, for almost all of these lesions if we can uh, catch them early. Uh, and really looking forward to the future here. I think we're, uh, we're, we're coming down uh, to a point in medicine where uh, our options are going to be a lot better for these advanced uh, cases. So I, again, want to thank you all for sticking it out on a Friday afternoon to the very end, and I'm happy to entertain any uh, questions, um, but I think they have some additional questions for you first. I think this is great. Th those are all like ACCME uh, questions that have to be asked. We have to do that at all of our meetings, but when you're able to answer the question right away when it's still fresh on your mind, uh, I, I think the, the, this audience response system is uh, really uh, good for that, as opposed to waiting two months before, to get your survey. <laughs> From, from the meeting organizers. Okay, happy to ant, uh, field any questions. I think we've got maybe about 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, what's the best way to evert the lid? So to evert the lid, what I like to do is I, like, I take a cotton tip applicator and I just put it on the eyelid skin, maybe about five millimeters or seven millimeters above the eyelid margin, and I just pull the eyelashes. So you pull the eyelashes, which pulls the eyelid out, and you push in, uh, with a, with a Q-tip, uh, about uh, seven millimeters, five to seven millimeters above uh, where you're pulling, and that will flip the lid around. Um, so the, the next question you're going to ask is, is that uncomfortable for the patient? Well, uh, I don't think it's comfortable, but patients tolerate it very well. And, you know, you, there are a lot of kids out there that flip their lids around all the time, so, so it's not truly painful, uh, but it's certainly an unusual sensation. But averting the eyelid is really part of an eye exam, and, and uh, if you really want to do a good eyelid evaluation, really should be averting the, uh, the, the eyelid. Would you be willing to evaluate my eyelid for possible chalasian and sebaceous cell carcinoma? Sure. <laughs> Um, the other thing that, and, you know, I'm talking to a, uh, I'm preaching to the choir here because I know you all do this. 
good lighting is critical when you're looking at small lesions on the eyelid in order to see the definition, to see the vessels, to see the changes in the uh, skin contour. Having good, eye, uh, good illumination and, and magnification can be very, very helpful. Are the patients awake during Mohs reconstruction for the eyelid? 99% of my cases are done uh, with the patient awake. Now, we may give them some uh, sedatives. Um, oftentimes, uh, we'll give them some uh, relaxants to keep them uh, comfortable, uh, but it's done under local anesthesia. Very rarely do I have to do a general anesthesia case. The only times when I will do a general uh, anesthesia reconstruction is if that excision has gone deep into the orbit, it's getting down to the bone where we may actually need to do, or if the tumor has invaded the bone and we actually may want to do like a reduction osteoplasty, sort of shaving away some of the bone to make sure that we're not uh, leaving any residual tumors uh, cell, cells behind. Um, but 99% of the time, patients are uh, either awake under straight local or under MAC anesthesia. Um, how do you debulk three to six month old transposition flaps that are bulky? Well, um, actually, so we just, I make an incision right uh, along the, uh, the previous incision where the scar is and just elevate that uh, flap and um, cut away the tissue to, uh, to remove some of the subcutaneous tissue uh, so that it's uh, thinned out. You can't necessarily do a lot of thinning of the flap when you're, pri when you're putting it down primarily because that, that can devascularize the flap. But when you wait a few months, that flap has now had a, a um, vascular supply that's grown in from the adjacent tissues, so that affords you the ability to go in and be a little bit more aggressive in thinning the flap and um, not having to worry about the flap uh, necrosing or contracting. Thoughts on or your experience with Epifix post-reconstruction with regards to increased healing, decreased scarring, or better outcomes. So, you know, I, I think with a lot of these products, um, I don't, and patients ask me this all the time, do I need to use this cream or that cream, uh, or do I use this product or that product? And I oftentimes tell them, I don't think it hurts, but if you're asking me to make a recommendation for you to go spend money on something, I would rather have some better evidence that, uh, to, uh, to make that recommendation. And I just don't think that there's good um, evidence, at least in the, for eyelid reconstruction, that, uh, that it's necessary. But one thing that I have uh, seen that I have been very impressed with is uh, some of the growth factors, uh, like, um, um, like Lumira or the bioserums, uh, those uh, from Neocutis. Uh, I have been pretty impressed with, uh, with those uh, for some of my scars in post-reconstruction patients, mainly for the, especially for the trauma patients, uh, not necessarily for the skin cancer patients. Skin cancer patients, usually they're older um, and uh, their skin is a lot thinner, uh, and so it heals um, better. Uh, but the younger patients that uh, are in accidents that we have to do large uh, reconstructions end up with a lot of scarring, and they're a little bit more self-conscious about that scarring. Uh, that's the one thing that I, I sometimes will recommend. Um, but all the other ones, if they ask me, I, I, I don't steer them away from it, but I certainly don't steer them towards those products. How do you dose Vismotigib for maintenance, given that its side effects are poorly tolerated in most patients? Good question. So oftentimes if we get to a maintenance what I will do is give them a little bit of a holiday. 
So, um, you know, I might give them a holiday from the medication for a month, and then we'll get restarted uh, on it. Um, and uh, usually, um, you know, that gives them a little bit of a break. Um, you know, if you give them a, the op, uh, I guess poorly tolerated is, is all relative. If you give them the option of having a hemifacectomy with, a, with an exoneration or tolerate some of the side effects, hair loss uh, from Vismotogib, uh, I'm not sure I would use poorly tolerated as, the, uh, as a descriptor. Uh, when should you suspect that a chalazion may be a sebaceous cell carcinoma? So that, uh, as we said, it's, a, it's the great masquerader. Um, and uh, chalazia are very common. I probably see four to five patients coming into my clinic uh, every day with chalazia. And they're worried that it's something else other than a chalazia, and it's not. It's just a blocked oil gland on their, on their eyelid. Um, but if it's persistent, if it's not getting better, if it's associated with lash loss, um, if there's... Um, breakdown, ulceration, bleeding, those are sort of features that would lead me to be a little bit more concerned uh, about it. So sometimes you just have to follow the patient um, and see. Chalasia, almost 99% of, or 90% of the time, chalasia will resolve spontaneously with conservative management. A uh, small percentage of uh, chalasia need to be excised, um, but even those patients, you don't see those other suspicious features like lash loss or large vessels growing into the uh, eyelid. So, um, Any tips for biopsy procedure to manage patient discomfort? Um, well, I think patient discomfort or patient comfort when we're biopsying the eyelid uh, really comes down to communications. And so I do a lot of talking. It, it's a lot of hand-holding, um, sort of talking them through the procedure. But, you know, you got to give an anesthetic shot. The anesthetic shot hurts, but it hurts for a few seconds. If you can talk them through that, once the anesthetic kicks in, they're not uncomfortable. Uh, they should be, uh, they'll do okay. Um, you definitely don't want an anxious patient that's jittery, that's moving around a lot when you've got a needle right next to their eye because uh, that can be devastating. Uh, so, so for us, it's a lot of talking them through it, preparing them for the procedure, letting them know what to expect when they're going to feel the discomfort from the anesthetic being infiltrated. So to me, uh, managing patient uh, discomfort is a lot about communications uh, and, uh, and just um, talking them and holding their hand through the procedure. What's the best biopsy technique for upper eyelid lesions? Uh, the best biopsy technique for any eyelid lesion is to... Um, get a fairly small, uh, you know, you don't want to create a large defect from your, from your biopsy. So almost all, universally when I biopsy an eyelid, it's small enough where we're not using any sutures to, uh, to close that area. And you, off, and you oftentimes want to get the margin of the lesion. So you don't want to get the, that central necrotic part because there's not enough viable cells there for the pathologist. You oftentimes don't want to get just the nodular part because then it just looks the same. There's nothing for the pathologist to compare with. You want to get the edge of the lesion so that they have some normal tissue that they can look at and the, uh, the lesion that they can look at for comparison and see exactly what layers of the uh, epidermis is involved, what, um, what the cells look like, uh, where they're originating from. Uh, so so that, that, I would say, is the, the key feature of doing a, a good eyelid biopsy. 
I really love how you can just an enter the questions in uh, like this. It really saves time. Uh, do you typically prescribe the biologics, or is it a decision made uh, by their dermatologist or Mohs surgeon? So I would say that it's oftentimes, um, it's oftentimes either us there or an oncologist. So in a lot of uh, insurance companies, they will not authorize the biologics unless it is prescribed by uh, an oncologist. Uh, so, um, but um, in, in some situations, I have been the one uh, that, if, for example, if the patient strictly has a skin cancer um, and they have limited resources, uh, then, then we'll uh, try to uh, just go ahead and get them um, uh, on their uh, biologic. And in some cases, the, 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 all the drug companies, they have uh, patient assistant uh, programs as well. So uh, it's filling out that paperwork uh, and sending in the, uh, the history and the photos and their financial information to, uh, to get them approved uh, for that. Rarely do I have the Mo, uh, are the Mohs surgeons involved because they're not actually doing any of the uh, resection for these patients. Sometimes it's their primary uh, dermatologist that, that might be uh, involved in, in, um, in that as well, in filling out that paperwork and uh, prescribing the uh, medication as well. Preferred biopsy method for lid margin lesions. Same as if it's not involving the lid margin to uh, get the, the edge of the lesion, get some normal eyelid uh, margin, get, the, uh, get some of the, uh, the, the lesion uh, in your specimen uh, as well. Which topical scar cream do you recommend? Again, here, uh, the only, I usually don't recommend uh, a scar cream for the eyelid, for, at least for skin cancer reconstructions, because the, usually you're talking about an older patient, the skin is thinner, patients, uh, the eyelids uh, have a, a great vascular supply, so they usually heal very well. Uh, in the younger patients, you know, I, I, sometimes I'll, I'll recommend the, the growth factors uh, for, for them. If they really feel like they, they, they need to use something, uh, that's what I would use. What instrument do you prefer to use for eyelid biopsy? Um, so I will usually use a, a pair of Westcott scissors, which is a, a fine pair of spring-loaded uh, scissors. Uh, gives me a, a lot of precision, and um, you know, you're not taking a big chunk uh, with every snip. In those eyelid margin lesions, sometimes I'll use a number 11 blade so that I can just shave off uh, a portion of the, uh, the, the lesion. I apologize if this was part of your intro, but why eyelids? Um, I like the eyelids. So I think the, the nice thing about the eyelids is that, that, that I find uh, interesting is it's, for a very small structure, it's very complex. It's multi-layered. Um, a lot can go wrong if you're not uh, familiar with the eyelids. And a lot of other physicians, a lot of other specialists are apprehensive about doing anything to the eyelids. A lot of my patients come from skilled surgeons, skilled physicians who don't feel comfortable dealing with the eyelids. Uh, so I feel like it's a, it's a very unique part of the body that's oftentimes overlooked and not much is known about it from other specialties. So, um, you know, somebody's got to do it, and uh, I really enjoy it. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for sticking it out to the very end. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.